our staff pastor, <laughs> Troy Tabor. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Let me uh, just quickly introduce my wife, Lisa. Lisa, you want to say hello? It, we, um, you guys have a dangerous stage. Um, I, I don't normally have problems uh, with stages, but I do tend to walk around when I preach. Unfortunately, sometimes I walk when I pray with my eyes closed, and I've stepped right off of them sometimes. But I think I'll be all right. It's good to be with you um, this morning. My wife and I have been missionaries in Cambodia for uh, 28 years, actually, total. Uh, we first arrived there in January of 1994. Cambodia is not a very large country, only about the size of the state of Oklahoma. We've got about 16 million people who live there. It is 95% Buddhist, uh, less than 2% Christian. And it's had incredible suffering and changes over the last 50 years, everything from a civil war that started in the, er, in the mid-60s that led to the Khmer Rouge, a, a radical communist group that uh, was in power for three years and killed a quarter of the population in a genocide in the mid-1970s, uh, to a Vietnamese invasion in 1979 that can, extended the civil war all the way out till 1999. And since 1999, an incredibly rapid-paced development and, and uh, uh, economic investment in the country that, that has led to a pace of change that, that really is destabilizing in many ways and is almost as harmful for people's self, uh, you know, for their, for their mental health as, as a period of war and violence. So that today we have a population in Cambodia that over 47% have unresolved post-traumatic stress disorder. Over 40% over have major anxiety disorders, 11% clinical depression. Suicide is off the charts. I mean, you go on and on and on. And those aren't things that are going to be fixed by, you know, a new, a new mall being built down the street or better electricity service and those kind of things. They're not problems that are going to be fixed in the natural. But we do serve a God who works in the supernatural. Uh, God has done incredible things there during our time in Cambodia. When we first went in 1994, there were only about 140 evangelical churches in the country. Today, there are almost 4,000 churches in Cambodia. God's doing great things there, but there's still so much left to do. Like I said, it's still 95% Buddhist, less than 2% less than Christian. It's a country uh, that there are places that have really never had an adequate gospel witness ever. Uh, um, my wife and I have worked in a number of different areas over the years since we first arrived. When we first went, we ran an orphanage of about 120 kids. We've done church planting in an island in the Mekong River. We've done... Uh, We've done, uh, you know, media ministries for the last 20-some years that involve everything from full-length evangelistic films released in theaters there to children's animated programs on TV, children's radio programs, discipleship curriculums, distance education programs for local Bible colleges. You name it, we've probably done it at some point or another. We do a lot of training for new missionaries coming out, uh, a lot of leadership development. And coming, coming up now, when we return to Cambodia in April... We have a new thing that we're, we're going to be involved with that we're really excited about. Uh, we're going to, about two years ago, uh, yeah, it'll be two years, it's October, in October it'll be two years ago, the national church leadership, the Cambodian Assemblies of God, came to us and said, hey, we've got a goal. We want to see a strong Cambodian ch church in each one of our provincial capitals, and we have 25 provinces. There's less than half of them currently that have and Assemblies of God work in those provinces. So half the country is still unreached. And um, 
they said, we want to have a strong church in there. We want to partner with you to, do these, to plant these churches. And we said, great, how do you want to do it? They said, we have no idea. That's why we came to you. And so, so uh, we are uh, heading up a new church planting team that's going to be planting a, ch a church on the coast in a city called Kype. It's the provincial capital. Uh, and uh, let me show you a quick video that gives you a little bit of a view of, of the city and the people who are there. Gaip is the provincial capital on Cambodia's southern coast. Once a glamorous resort for Cambodia's rich and famous, Gaip still bears the scars of the Khmer Rouge years and is still recovering from decades of war and violence. 95% of the Cambodian population of Gaip is Buddhist. The town is made up of fishermen, farmers, children, teenagers, and adults, almost all of whom have never had the chance to know Jesus. But imagine if that could change. There has never been an Assemblies of God church in the entire province of Gaip. But today, a church planting team is being formed to open this new area to the kingdom of God. With your partnership and support, imagine what God can do in Gaip. We're excited about this project, but we need your help to do it. We need your prayers and your support. This uh, area also has a large Muslim population. Uh, literally, you go from the town center in one direction, you go past, uh, within a few hundred yards, you go past Buddhist temples, a few hundred yards in the other direction, Muslim mosques. Um, we need your help. We need your prayers. God's spirit moves when God's people pray. And nothing is going to happen there without God's spirit moving. We need to break through there. So please pray with us on that. Make sure you pick up one of our prayer cards in the back before you leave on the table out there or get one from my wife or I. Um, uh, also out there, you're going to see some pop-up banners. Uh, on there is a QR code, if you know what those are. If you scan that, it's going to take you to our website, and you can find all kinds of information about Cambodia, more details about the ministry we've been involved in over the years. Uh, you can even find recipes for Cambodian food if you want it on that website. So check that out. Uh, there's some good things there. But one of the things that really makes us excited about this project uh, of planning this new church is that it feels like, like almost like starting over in a good way. It's kind of getting back to basics. This is why we got into missions in the first place, was to take the gospel to places it's never been. And, and it's not that we haven't been doing that over the last 20-some years. We have, but, but this, is, this, this is, you know, getting up and you know, going to a new place. I mean, it's exciting. We're really excited about it. Uh, because it's responding to God's call again, you know, in, in a new way. And really, how we respond to God's call is an important thing for every single one of us, not just missionaries, not just pastors, but all of us, because all of us have been called. So I want to talk to you a little bit today, this morning, about God's call. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis, uh, or excuse me, not Genesis, uh, Jonah. Jonah and Genesis are far apart, but we're going to be looking at Jonah. Um, Jonah is an interesting character in the Bible. Uh, he's only mentioned one time outside of the book that bears his name, and that's just briefly in 2 Kings. It mentions him in um, uh, 2 Kings chapter 14 that he had given a prophecy to the king of, of the northern kingdom of Israel about that they, he would recover some lands that had been lost in the past, and it comes to pass. He recovers those lands, and so he's looked on favorably by the governments of the time because he's not a prophet who's coming in saying, Everything's going to be bad for you because you've said he, he came in and he said, hey, good things are going to happen, and good things did happen. And so he's, he's sitting pretty comfortably, and he's, 
He lives just on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And, uh, and we come to chapter 1, verse 1 of Jonah, the book of Jonah, and it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was a great city at the time. It wasn't yet the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It would eventually become that. But it was already a powerful nation. It was already uh, known for its brutality, its violence. If they were coming to invade your city, you could pretty much kiss your life as you knew it goodbye. Because they would come in, they would kill most of the people, and anybody who survived, they would forcibly take them out of the city, bring people from other areas they had conquered to resettle where you were, and force you to be a refugee in those other areas. So your life was over. I mean, it was done if they were coming after you. And, and, and that's just the beginning of the things they would do and the violence and the wickedness and evil that were there. So much so that it comes to a point where God says, I've got to destroy him. It's gotten so bad. The only other place I remember this happening in the Bible off the top of my head is, is Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, so think, think of it. This is how wicked these, these places are. And God tells Jonah, I want you to go there and, and call out to them the word I'm going to give you. And so Jonah says, okay, and he gets up and he goes to the coast to Joppa, gets on a boat and goes in the exact opposite direction, right? He doesn't go towards Nineveh at all. Nineveh is up to the northeast. Jonah goes as far west as he can possibly go. He goes to Joppa, finds a ship, uh, you know, a trading ship that sails on the Mediterranean Sea and says, where are you guys going? They say, Tarshish. Tarshish is way over by Spain. He says, great, I want to go with you. I'm getting on here, and they take off uh, uh, for Tarshish. Now, you guys know the story. God sends a, a, a storm to come up on the sea because of this, and, and this boat is caught in the midst of this storm. And this is a major storm. This isn't anything small. This is, this is a big, big storm. In fact, you've got to remember, these are professional sailors, and it's so severe, this storm is so severe that they're convinced it's a God behind it. They're saying it's, it's obviously supernatural, it's so severe. And so they all start calling out to their gods. Now, I love this part of the story because it reminds me of the Cambodian people. These sailors are just like Cambodians. Cambodians are Buddhist, but they're also very animistic in a lot of the things they do. And in animistic society, they believe that there are spirits that live in different rocks and trees and areas, and that uh, they basically live in fear of what those spirits will do to them if they don't properly honor those spirits or appease them. And so they'll go to different places, offer sacrifices if they're traveling somewhere. They'll stop at different shrines to offer uh, incense or food to that spirit of that area to appease it so that they aren't harmed. And that's what these sailors do. The storm comes up. It's obvious it's, it's, it's a supernatural event. And so they start all calling out to their gods uh, for, for mercy to try to figure out why this storm is happening. But nothing happens. Nothing's changing. They're not getting any answers. So the captain of the ship says, well, let's cast lots to see which person can give us the answer, which god it is that's, that we're dealing with here. And so they cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. And they know who Jonah is. At least they know that he's running from God. Apparently, he had told them he was running from his God when he got on the ship. And so they come to him. They say, Jonah, hey, uh, you know, we, we, we know you're running from a God and all, but we don't, we're not real clear on who that is. I think they were, they were trying to, they were hoping it would be like, oh, I serve the God of Joppa. Maybe the farther away we get away from Joppa, the less the storm will be, that sort of a thing. That, something that they could outrun, something they could get away 
from the God's territory. And they say, so we're not real sure who it is you serve. Who is this God you're running from? He says, well, I serve the God who created all the heavens, all the earth, all the skies, all the seas. That's the God I serve. And they're kind of like, well, wait, wait a minute. You serve who? And you got on our boat to run from him? Well, Jonah, what do we do? How do we stop this? He said, well, you can throw me overboard. Now, again, I love these sailors because even they're, they're like, wait a minute, even we know you aren't supposed to kill people, right? <laughs> so they're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to throw you overboard. And so they, they try to row him to shore. I mean, do you get what they, what's happening here? These guys, these heathen uh, uh, sailors are putting their own lives at risk to try to save this guy who has had no concern for them and put them at risk in the first place. And they're going out of their way to try to save him. But they can't make it to shore. They can't do it. So they end up going back to the boat. And, and they're like, we, you know, God, we tried. You know, God, we tried to save him. We tried any other way. We couldn't get there. So God, don't hold this against us. And they take him and they throw him overboard. And immediately, the storm stops. Now, you might be, if you're in the midst of a storm that is so severe, you're convinced it's supernatural, you might be afraid. But I guarantee you, if you did something like that and all of a sudden it stops... Now you're really terrified. Because now it's not just, this might be God. Now it's, this is God. And these sailors are so, you know, overcome by this whole thing that it says that in verse, excuse me, uh, in verse 16, it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They basically turned it around. They turned their lives around. They said, we're not serving these various gods anymore. We're making vows to this God who's over all things. The God of Jonah, that's the God we're going to serve. Meanwhile, Jonah's treading water next to the boat. And they kind of look over and just about, hey, Jonah. And all of a sudden, this fish comes up and swallows him. Now, I grew up watching Disney cartoons and things. And any of you ever see Pinocchio? Remember Pinocchio, a couple of you? Yeah, you know, and there's a scene where Pinocchio gets swallowed by a a, a whale. And he goes in, and he's in the whale's belly, and it's this big cavernous room. And and there's there's a little shack floating there with a a porch on, and Geppetto's in there fishing, and there's a cat. You remember this? Well, this is nothing like that, okay? This is the exact opposite, in fact. I mean, this imagine being swallowed by this fish. It, It would be absolutely pitch black. The, your, your sense of up and down and, and left and right would be all thrown out of whack as the fish is swimming through the sea. The sounds that you would hear, the things happening around you, the, the smells and, and this burning on your skin and in your lungs and your eyes as, from the acids in the stomach, the, 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 the pressure and the churning that's there. I mean, think of when you eat like a, a piece of pizza late at night or some ch- chili or something and, and how your stomach will start grinding together and making noises. Now imagine you're in the middle of that. And that's Jonah. I mean, I can't think of a worse, more horrible place to be than in, the, in, a, in a whale's stomach like that. It just, it, it, it would be incredible. And in verse, uh, it, it, it says, the Bible says that after three days in there, Jonah prays. Now, did you get what I just said? After three days, he prays. Let me tell you something. The fish would start to come up around me. I'd be praying already. I can't believe it took him three days of this to pray. 
I mean, this is the kind of stubborn heart that Jonah has. This is the kind of, uh, of bitterness that he's got there. He's so determined to run from God's call to go to Nineveh that he's sitting there in the whale's stomach for three days, and he doesn't pray. It's just amazing to me. It's incredible. And then you look at his prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're not going to read it right now, but, but what you'll find that's amazing about it is not what he says. It's what he doesn't say. Because he says things like, yeah, God, there's no place I can run from you. I can go to the highest heights. I can go to the deepest deeps. You're there. You're the only one. But he never once says, I'm sorry, God. I was wrong. I shouldn't have run from you. He never once says, God, I'll do it if you give me a second chance. He never says once, God, save me. None of that. But despite that kind of a prayer, God is a God of grace, and he still remembers Jonah. And in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God gave him a second chance at life. Now, some people are like, oh, it's a fairy tale, and you can live in a whale's stomach for three days. You're right. If they were in a whale's stomach for three days, it would be a miracle for the person to live that long. Or he could be dead, and God resurrected him on that third day when it spit him out. Either way, it's a miracle. The point is God miraculously intervened to give him a second chance. He has a second chance at life. And more than that, the verses that we're reading there go on and say, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God not only gave him a second chance at life, he gave him a second chance to answer the call. And Jonah goes sort of he goes but it's kind of like if you ever had a kid and you, the kid needs to clean their room or do something they don't want to do and and you tell them hey go clean your room then no i'm not going to go clean the room and you're like well he, he, you're going to lose your teeth i'm not going to clean the room and you argue and fight back and forth and finally they're like fine i'll go clean my room and they go but you can see in their eyes in their heart they're not going you know what i'm talking about you ever been there that's jonah because he goes And he goes to Nineveh, and this city is so large that it takes three days to go throughout the whole city proclaiming this message. He goes three days throughout this whole city preaching an eight-word sermon that is the absolute bare minimum he can do to fulfill what God's told him to do. He goes through there for eight days saying in verse chapter 3, verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. It's not God's mad at you because of your wickedness. It's not your, your wickedness has come up before him. He can't let it go. It's not repent. It's not get right with God. It's not even telling them who's, who's going to destroy them. It's 40 days and you're all dead. That's it. I mean, it's, that is the absolute bare minimum he could have done. And he does that and he gets, goes through all that. And God, who again is an incredibly gracious God, takes that half-hearted, weak little sermon that he's given and uses it to bring about the greatest turnaround in the history of the world. 120,000 people, this city of wickedness that was so bad, God was about to wipe it off the face of the earth, turns around completely. It says that as you went through the city, the people would hear the message, they repented, they put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a, a way of showing their repentance. They'd fast and pray. The king hears about it, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and fasts and pray. And this is my favorite part. Again, this, this, this book is just full of great details. But I guarantee you've never seen this happen. 
You'll never see this happen probably. And if you've seen it happen, especially in this church, I'm going to be incredibly impressed. <laughs> but the king puts on sackcloth and ashes, repents, prays, and tells everybody, okay, now I want you all to go home, put your animals in sackcloth and ashes, and make sure they fast and repent. I'm not making this up. He's got the livestock fasting and praying and putting on sackcloth and ashes. Have you ever had a service here that went so well, spirit was really moving, God was doing some great things, and Pastor Jeff says, all right, when you go home, make sure your dog fasts and pray. No. But these guys are like, look, we're serious about this repenting. I don't know who messed up or where it came from or what offense we're, we're dealing with here, but we're going to cover all our bases, make sure even your animals are seen as being in mourning and fasting and repentance. It's incredible, the level of the turnaround that happened. And the result of that, you see in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, when God saw what they had did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God forgives them and holds back on wiping them out. What an incredible thing. Now, I can tell you right now, if I go to Kite and we start preaching there and, and doing this church work, and if the whole city turns around, the entire city turns to God in repentance, and they don't even have to have their animals in sackcloth and ashes. I'd be, you know, if they're just the people, right, are repenting like this, I'll tell you what, you'll find me dancing in the streets in Kite. I'll be so excited. I'd be thrilled. And so Jonah's got to be pretty excited about this too, right? No. It goes on and says in chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please... Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Can you believe this? He's so angry because not only was his, his position disturbed, not only was God sending him someplace that could be dangerous, not, not, that's not even the biggest thing. What he's telling us here is the big thing is we're God's people. Israel's God's people. Those other people, they don't deserve to have God. They just deserve to die. You should kill them all now, God. How dare you try to forgive them? He's a bigot. I mean, he's saying, it's just Israel and that's it. Those other people, forget them. And then he takes it one step further and becomes the first drama queen in history and says, it's just better for me to die than to live like this. Unbelievable attitude. And so then he goes outside of the city, goes a little way down the road, sits down, puts up a little shelter thing, sits down under that, and waits for God to destroy the city. Kind of like, okay, God, I want to make sure you do what you're supposed to do now. God tries one more time to send, teach him a lesson. He sends a uh, plant to grow up and give him some shade. So this plant grows up uh, miraculously and, and provides him shade as he's sitting there. And if you're sitting there and a plant suddenly grows up around you, you know it's a miraculous thing. You know it's God's hand. And so... Jonah's pleased with the plant. Now, that's, all, that's how the Bible puts it. But you've got to put it in context here, right? Think of Jonah's attitude and everything else. You know he's sitting there going, that's right, God, I deserve the shade. Now get on with wiping out the people. 
I mean, that's, that's it. So he's sitting there, and then night comes down, and during the night, God sends a worm. He says, here we go. Here's the lesson. White kills the plant. So then in the morning when the sun comes up, the plant falls over. He's sitting there in the sun again, and again, he's angry at God and starts on this whole rant again about, it's just better you know, for me to die if I'm going to have to sit out here in the sun like this. And, and God finally has one last conversation with him um, in chapter 4. Uh, at the end of the book. And basically, in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, basically, Jonah's still angry, and God basically says, look, Jonah, you're more upset about losing the comfort of, and shade of that plant than you are about 120,000 people who were saved. And the book ends. It's an incredible thing. You look at that story and the difference between Jonah on the one hand and these sailors and the people of Nineveh on the other hand. Jonah runs from God's call. The, the per, and it's ironic. The man of God from God's chosen people runs from God's call. The heathen sinners who are about to be wiped out run to God's call. We have a friend in Cambodia, a man named Samat, who... Uh, actually grew up in the orphanage that we used to run. He was there when we came. He, he uh, you know, had, had come to the orphanage in his, uh, like, uh, middle school years. And then he had, um, this is actually before the Assemblies of God took it over. This had been in the late 80s. And he started to have some heart problems. He, he, he couldn't keep up with his other friends. He didn't realize it was a heart problem at the time. He started to not be able to keep up with people, have a lack of energy, had a hard time catching his breath. He'd lay down, and he'd have these pains in his chest. And, well, to make a long story short, uh, you know, it was obvious something was wrong with him. And there was no doctors or anything to take him to at the time. The Civil War was still going on. So the orphanage staff took him to what would be kind of like a, a, a witch doctor kind of person, a traditional healer who worked in spiritism as well. And this guy checked him out and said, well, you know, you, you probably offended some spirit around here and not appeased it properly, and that's why this is happening. In fact, you, go, you, you live at the orphanage. He's like, yeah. And you go to that school over there? Yeah. And you walk down this street? Yes. And have you ever had to use the bathroom while you're on the street, walking down the street? He says, yeah. He says, have you ever peed on this tree over here? Yes. Well, that tree is inhabited by a powerful spirit. I'm not making this up. This is what this guy actually said. He said, well, you've offended that tree, by, pe by that spirit, by by urinating on the tree it lives in. And so you need to offer, make an offering to this spirit to be relieved of this. And so he and the orphanage staff went and offered a chicken at the tree uh, to this spirit. And, and, and it seemed to work for a little while, but not long. So they'd try offering different places and, and do this. And this went on for quite a while until the Assemblies of God took over running that orphanage. And the missionary who was there started holding services during the week during the week on Sunday uh, at a church in town and Samat and some of his friends started to go not because they so much believed it or wanted to be a Christian but because it was Sunday morning that the orphanage staff would have them do chores at the orphanage and they wanted to get out of those uh, just like any good teenager and so they go to uh, the church and eventually after being at the church and hearing they started to believe and Samat became a Christian and he got a Bible of his own. He started to be involved in outreaches. And about that time, the missionary brought in a medical team to check out the kids at the orphanage as well as people in the village uh, to try to provide some health care in an area that didn't have any. A nurse from Des Moines, Iowa, listened to Samat's heart, 
and recognized that there was a problem, was able to get him down to the capital city in Phnom Penh to get some tests, and there wasn't much there either, but she did get uh, EKG done and uh, some chest x-rays, and she took those results with her back to Iowa, to Des Moines, Iowa, and showed them to a cardiologist she worked with back there. And he looked at him and said, this is serious, this kid's going to die, I'm surprised he's still alive, he needs a heart valve replacement. And to make, a, again, a long story short, uh, she arranged to get all of that donated. She had the doctor donated his time and his efforts. The hospital donated all the time and supplies and everything. She got an airline to donate tickets. And within a few months, he was on a, somehow was on a plane going to Des Moines, Iowa to get this heart valve replacement surgery done, all free of charge. He was there for three months. And Des Moines, Iowa has a large Cambodian community, and then there's a church in it. And a couple from the church who had no children of their own put him up while he was there. He stayed with them. And towards the end of his time there, they, they came to him and they said, you know, Samant, we really care about you. We, we really come to love you and we want to we give you an opportunity. We want to adopt you. We want to make you a part of our family. Um, you know, you can stay here. You'll have an education. You'll have good health care. You'll have anything you need. You'll have a family again. You'll have people who love you around you. And Samat said, well, I, I appreciate that. I thank you so much for that. But God's called me to be a pastor in Cambodia, and I want to go back there to tell people about Jesus. And he gave it all up. Everything any Cambodian could ever hope or dream for. To go back to Cambodia in the middle of a civil war, back into living in an institution, in an orphanage, with no promise, no guarantee of anything to come. He went back, he finished high school, ended up going to Bible, or Bible college, finished that, planted a church in the capital city, had the opportunity to go to Singapore for more education, went there, got his master's degree, came back again to Cambodia, became dean of students at our Bible college, eventually became the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Cambodia, and ended up now, he's pastoring another church that he's planted, the second church there, and he's uh, uh, the head of an organization called uh, Cambodia Global Action, which is kind of like Convoy of Hope, if you're familiar with them. It's the relief and development arm of the Cambodian Assemblies of God. Uh, he's doing great things. He's married, has four kids of his own now. Amazing man. Amazing things God has used him in to do in Cambodia. But he had an opportunity to have everything anybody could ever imagine, at least from a Cambodian perspective. Instead, he chose to go fulfill the call of God on his life in a place that was in the middle of a war, no guarantees, none of that stuff I just said was on the table during that time when he was making that decision. None of it. And he heads back to Cambodia and God used him in incredible ways. Amazing thing. And you can consider the difference between Samat and Jonah. Jonah, he was, like I said, the man of God. He was the guy who was who was already a prophet. And he hears God's call and realizes it might cost him something and says, forget it, and goes his own way because it doesn't line up with what he wants. It doesn't, it's not comfortable. It's going to be a sacrifice. All those things. And he says no and runs away from it. And when he does do it, he only does it grudgingly, half-heartedly, and he ends up bitter alone instead of joining in with the joy of seeing a city turn around. He instead stays bitter and alone on the outside of what God is doing. Samad, on the other hand, had the opportunity to have all the comforts in the world. 
and said, no, I'd rather go out to where there's suffering and uncertainty and danger. I'd rather go do that and fulfill God's call than stay here in comfort out of God's will. And so he went back, and God's used him in incredible ways. And I can't help but wondering which one we're more like. You know, God gives us all opportunities. God has called us all to be a part of his plan. But are we more likely to run to fulfill God's call like, like Samat did, despite the discomfort and sacrifice that would come with it? Or are we more likely to be like Jonah, running away from the difficult and uncomfortable things God calls us to do and only grudgingly complying when we feel we have no other choice? We're called each one of us, to be a part of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, of making disciples of all nations. I can't tell you. It breaks my heart going to different places where I've talked to pastors in different churches where they say, you know, when we have missionary come, we don't tell anybody they're coming because if I say that they're coming, people won't show up for the service because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to be put upon. Now, I know this, you guys, you guys have partnered with us for 25 years. And Samat's story is as much your story. But we can't do it alone. We can't go into a place like Kipe and make it. And God calls every one of us to do things. He calls you to be a part of his plan. He calls each one of you. And he's had amazing grace in your life. How can you respond with anything but humility and gratitude? It's not a right that we have to be here. I know Americans, we're all about our rights. You know, I have a right to do this or to not do that. and this. That's all, it's all fine and well, but that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is not about demanding your rights. It's about laying down your life for others. even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's uncertain. You know, I know we live in the middle of uncertain times, and there's a lot of fear out in the world and things. Do you want to know how to have peace and how to have joy? Jesus talked about it when he told the parable of the talents. You guys remember the parable of the talents? The money lend, the, the master's going away on a trip. He gives five talents to one servant, two talents to another, one talent to another servant. He says, I'm going on this trip. Use them wisely. I'll come back and settle up with you later. And we like to think, oh, the talents, yeah, he, he, one can sing. and one can, No, that's, we're not talking that. This is money. And the money amount, I don't think we always realize. One talent is equivalent to about $1.6 million today. So even the one guy who got one, got $1.6 million. He's a servant. And his master's saying, I'm going to give you $1.6 million to invest. And so, I mean, it's a lavish trust that the master gives them. And he gives them according to their ability. So he's not overwhelming them. Gives them according to their ability. And you know, you know the story. The five gets five more and has ten at the end. The one who has two has two more, has four at the end. The one who has one has, just hides it and ends up with just the one. Now, when you've heard this story preached about before, this parable preached about, you've probably heard it about ta people talking about the one guy with the one talent, right? I don't want to talk about him today. I want to talk about the other two. Because the other two, look at what the master says 
when he when he when they come back with us. They say when he give they give him the talents and what they've gained. He says, "Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master." You want to have joy and peace in the midst of uncertainty in the world around us? I'll tell you how to do it. Do what God tells you to do. That's going to give you joy and peace like you could never imagine. But we're all too ready to say, well, God, that's fine for them. I'm a little busy right now. I want to challenge you. You have opportunities that I will never have that your pastor will never have. You will come in contact with people and situations in your life that are unique to you, that God has placed you in to be his hands and feet in that moment. And I want to challenge you to pray and ask God to use you in that moment to follow God's direction. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes to me for just one minute. I'm going to ask you to respond to that commitment in just a moment. But really, the first thing that always, you know, the first call of God is to accept him as your Lord and Savior. You know, this is, this is what the people in Nineveh responded to, the opportunity to, to be saved from, from the circumstances they found themselves in. Through nothing but God's grace and mercy. And the first thing I want to do is ask, if you are here today, with everyone's head down, eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, you've never responded to God's call, he's calling you now. He says today is the day of salvation. And if you're here today, you've never done that, but you'd like to. You'd like to take that first step to following him, to having that joy and that peace I just talked about. I'd just like you to slip your hand up real quick so I can pray with you not going to ask you to come forward right now or do anything like that. Just want to pray with you. Not going to take a lot of time on this. Okay. Second thing I want to ask you about is I want to ask all of you where you're at in responding to God's call. Not just call to salvation, but your call every day because every day God's Holy Spirit guides and directs us is speaking to us. We aren't always tuned into it. We aren't always listening. We're not always willing to listen. But God calls you to be a part of what he's doing in this world and speaks to you through his Holy Spirit. And I want to challenge you to pray and ask God to make you sensitive to his leading and guiding and direction, that you can hear his voice and that you would have the strength to do the thing that he calls you to do. No matter what that is. It might be double your missions giving. It might be tell your neighbor about Jesus. It might be doing whatever. And in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up if you're willing to do that. And I only do that not to embarrass anybody or anything like that, but because by standing up, you're doing something physical, making a, a move that builds an altar in your life, a place that you can look back to and say, this was the moment, this is the time when things changed. See, because sometime down this week, this week, next, today, tomorrow, in a few days, you're going to have an opportunity to do something. God's going to put an opportunity in front of you, and you're going to be faced with that question of, do I do it and be uncomfortable? My, I, I sacrifice something and do it, or do I just let it go for now and deal with something later? And that question's going to be there. And I want you to have a place and a time to look back to and say, no, I stood up on Sunday and said I'd do it, so I'm going to do it. So, I want to ask you, if you're willing to make that commitment, to pray and say, God, I want you to do 
I want you to speak to me. I want you to make you sensitive to, my, to your voice. And I want to do what you call me to do. If you're willing to pray that prayer, I'd just like you to stand up where you are so I can pray with you real quick. Again, not going to take a lot of time. Just stand up real quickly so we can pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for all you've done for us, God. There's, it is amazing the amount of grace and mercy you've shown in our lives. We can talk about the things that Jonah did wrong or Ninevites or anybody, but we know our own sin. We know we, we, we stand there like Paul, feeling like, God, we're the chief of sinners, and you've had grace and mercy on us. God, don't let us become have an attitude of bitterness like, like, we, like we deserve that, like it's our right like Jonah did. But help us to be sensitive and grateful and humble of heart knowing that you've done something for us we did not deserve. And Lord, make us sensitive to the leading of your spirit and use us, God, to, to, to further the work of your kingdom right here in Freehold, right here in New Jersey, and around the world in places like Cambodia. God, use us. I pray for each one who's standing here, Lord. Pour your Holy Spirit out on them in a new way. making them sensitive to your leading and guiding and direction. Give them opportunities, divine appointments this week when they can be used for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for each one. In your name we pray. Amen. What's it cost to plant a church in that area? I mean, wow. Thing we're really not, don't have a number. It's going to... You're talking probably somewhere in the neighborhood of ten thousand dollars. That's all. Well, yeah. There's. Yeah. It's only money. I thought. What was the young boy that had the heart? What was his name? Sama. He wasn't one of the boys that took the neighbor's dog, was he? He was. He was one of the. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I can't leave him hanging. You gotta tell the story. You gotta li listen real quick. Tell it r real quick. Yeah, this was uh, <laughs> make a, again a longer story shorter. A uh, lady in our came up in our church after the service who lived behind the orphanage pulled me aside and said, "I wanted to talk to you. You can have a seat." And pulled me aside and said, uh, "Hey, wanted to let you know. The other day, some of the boys from the orphanage they ate my dog." Nothing I had ever dealt with as a youth pastor in New Jersey. You know. And I said, okay, uh, they, do you want us to buy you a new dog? I, honestly, I didn't know what to say. She says, no, I just wanted to let you know. I said, okay, I'll take care of it. I'll talk to the boys. Went back to the orphanage that afternoon, got some of the older boys together in my office. Uh, Samat was one of them. And sat him down, and I said, now, the other night, did you guys eat the neighbor's dog? You know, I, I don't think that's ever come up, you know, I said, did you eat the neighbor's dog? And they said, well, yeah, we did. We ate the dog. I said, well, why did you do that? Well, we heard it was a delicacy, and we wanted to try it. And, uh, of course, they didn't want to get caught, and it was nighttime, so they didn't want to build a fire because someone would see the fire. So they just ate the dog. Yeah. Uh, but God goes on and does great things with people. They still, can be, they still can be the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God even after eating the neighbor's dog. That's the, that's the grace and mercy of God. Hey, I trust that you have time. Go get a donut.